You are listening to the Engineering Ignition Podcast, your weekly insight into the engineering sector. Sponsored by Bonfire Recruitment, helping engineering leaders across the UK to attract the best talent for their engineering company. Ignite your business or career today by visiting www.bonfireengineering.com. Here's your host, Scott Buchanan. Welcome to this week's Engineering Ignition podcast with myself, Scott Buchanan. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Anima Kosai, who is the founding director at Speak Up at Work. Anima has over 14 years legal counsel experience within the international oil and gas industry, and I've been learning plenty of others. But but the reason I'm really excited to have her on the show is she has a real passion for improving working practices within all types of engineering um, and industry um, across the environmental, social and corporate governance landscape. Anima is the founding director of Speak Up at Work, and I'm delighted to be joined by her just now. Good morning, Anima. Welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Thank you, Scott. I'm I'm wonderful. I'm on my second cup of coffee and I'm delighted to be here with you. I'm delighted to have you here. And um, yes, we it's very early just now, so I do appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Um, today we are discussing um, a hot topic of empowering employees to raise environmental, social and corporate governance concerns in industrial workplace. And to be honest, I, I can't think of anyone better place to have this discussion um, with. And Anima, for, for, for those listeners who aren't aware of what ESG is, are you able to give, I guess, a brief overview of what this is and, and I guess why it's important? Well, in a nutshell, ESG, environmental, social and, and, and governance. Um, I, you know, in, in, in the years that I've been uh, both practicing law and working in the oil and gas industry, I think I've been... Um, subconsciously living and breathing it without quite naming, oh, this is ESG. Um, And uh, I've been pretty much focused. um, I have a strong environmental background. I did environmental law. I was the the chairperson of the environmental law committee with the Kuala Lumpur Bar in Malaysia, where where I practice law. And um, it's quite interesting. Then I joined the oil and gas industry, where actually, um, funnily enough, I, I think Scott's laughing at me here. Um, I learned an incredible amount about environmental compliance. Um, So these are areas where, you know, I'm I'm very conscious about where, you know, I know there's a lot of criticism to the industry, but you would be amazed at the the lengths um, that it had gone to in order to ensure its practices did not pollute, um, you know, oceans, um, also the air, the kind of things that, it would do conscious as well as being branded very much uh, as a polluter. So it's like sometimes you're in there and you're trying, you know, your, your level best to make sure that people are comfortable um, speaking up. So I, I was also in a in a very large uh, service provider organization to the industry and once asked the chairman at a town hall, what are you doing, you know, oh. um, to, uh, about environmental uh, issues? And he was a little bit perplexed at that time. Mind you, this was almost 20 years ago, and the world has definitely changed. And I know that company now um, is definitely a lot bigger on renewables, as is the industry as a whole. So one of the things I'm really passionate about, and I I come also from a human rights background. 
So I've always been um, very strong advocate on allowing people within organizations to speak on speak up on areas that they're very, very passionate about, concerned about. And that would include things about, you know, the environment. And when we look at society, um, we're looking at if you're working in an organization, what is your company doing that impacts the society around them? I mean, for example, are they making consumer goods that may have a supply chain from other countries where they may be having practices um, which could be hurting people in those countries? Um, an example, I'm drinking wonderful coffee at the moment. And as I drink my coffee, I sometimes do wonder the people who picked um, or who grew that coffee, who picked it, were they treated uh, in a fair way? Were they paid fair wages? Um, are they are they safe when they work? So that's the S in ESG, you know, in terms of the organizations we work for, how conscious are we of the impact our companies are having on society and the supply chain and consumers around them? Right. So and it doesn't hurt for us to be asking these questions of our own employers. And when we look at G governance, OK, that's probably the biggest thing for me, simply because I am a lawyer. Um, and when I looked at governance issues, it's really about holding uh, people, particularly those in positions of um, decision making and power, holding them accountable for the for for the decisions that they make, uh, making sure that, um, you know, we're, everything is above board ethical standards are met, there's no conflict of interest. I would investigate things like fraud and corruption as well um, in my time as, as a lawyer. So that, that's a really big deal for me. And so when I started Speak Up at Work, it was this sort of background of realizing within organizations, a lot of us kind of know when something's not quite right, whether we're looking at the environmental, the society or the governance point of view. And it's important that if we see something's not quite right, we're uncomfortable with it, we can go to someone and tell them about it with the expectation that it will be addressed. And very importantly, the expectation that we're safe, that we are not going to suffer retaliation. And since I started Speak Up at Work, the number of whistleblowers that I've spoken to, um, also here in the UK, I mean, not, not just in Malaysia, here in the UK, in the US, a lot of the Western world, this is fairly common, as well as Asia, all around the world. This is a common trend, unfortunately, that a lot of organizations are close to listening to this really important feedback, and they do retaliate in terms of people being fired and so on. So it's scary. I mean, what that does is create an environment which is very scary for people to raise issues. But well, that was a rather long answer to your question. But, but it's a very good one, and it, it, it's one that highlights the depth and the, the angles, I guess, of how broad, um, you know, a responsibility that, that I guess we have as employees, but also as, as companies should have on their employees as well. And it's, it's trying to identify um, the best um, processes and policies, I guess, and, and, and empowering people, I guess, to, to feel comfortable and safe at work. I think, I think the days have gone by now, or surely must have gone by, or should be gone by, whereby you, you go to work and it's not a safe environment, I think, now, um, and, you know, and, and that should, should happen. But I guess you, you've, you've started up this business, you're the founding director, and what was your, was there a particular reason why you did it at a point in time? Was, was there a reasoning behind it? Well, yeah. <laughs> 
I've been working well full time 23 years, um, very long days. I had a, a very all consuming job. I loved my job. Um, I loved being a in house counsel with tackling all kinds of issues. Um, but it was also uh, very, very stressful. And there, there was part of me that felt, um, you know, I was, I was making a lot of changes within my own organization in terms of speaking up and so on. And I felt, yeah, it's working well where I am, um, and that's great. But surely there are more people that need this, you know. So here yeah. I am, the practitioner, you know, in a company, and then okay, I need to go into this big sea out there, um, and um, and talk to other people about it, talk to other organizations. So um, I don't know if you know this, Scott. So I left Malaysia. I'm, I'm half British, so I came back here. Um, and uh, for the first uh, year or so, all I did was write. Um, I think I, I needed that break, but I did a lot of writing and I've written about, we were talking earlier, the deep, deep water horizon, which was uh, the BP Gulf of Mexico disaster. I've, I've also written about the Volkswagen fraud scandal, uh, Fukushima, the nuclear disaster in terms of what, occur, what could have been uh, prevented once the tsunami hit um, and other kind of disasters but I also looked at you know the the corruption angle I was looking at Petrobras in Brazil right because I come from that industry um, and um, other cases as well um, where it's basically about something has gone wrong um, inside the organization there were people in the organization who knew about it but felt they couldn't speak up about it because there was this big culture of fear um and that's common in so many um so many organizations yeah so i i took time out did a lot of writing i did talks um uh, yeah the other area i forgot to mention very important sexual harassment and bullying as well me yeah. too happened um so i i did quite a number of talks uh, around that because i i give workshops on on, on bullying and sexual harassment as well Again, very important and, and very relevant across many workplaces still, um, yeah. across the world as well. Yeah. You, you touched on, I guess, three major disasters. I mean, there's no two, two ways about it with the Volkswagen, BP and Fukushima scenario. I mean, did you, was there commonality between all this or was each of these um, scenarios slightly different in terms of, of what happened or prevented the actions? What, what did you learn? Absolutely. I mean, these are three countries, I mean, probably right across the globe, right? You've got Japan in the east, you've got Germany kind of in the middle there, and then you've got um, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, southern US um, on, the, on, on the western side. Um, and they all have, um, they all had the same impact. The impact of the environment was severe in every single one of those cases, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the nuclear disaster, um, uh, toxic emissions to the environment from uh, the Volkswagen diesel gate. And of course, um, the huge um, um, pollution to the, the Gulf of Mexico as a, as a result of BP. But also as far as BP was concerned, we had um, quite a number of people who died also in Fukushima. So there's loss to life, there's loss, um, there's, there's damage to the environment. But if we look at the cause, they were all very deeply technical. But underlying that was an issue of human behavior. Um, and what I saw was um, the pressure. Now, the common, the common thing among all three, because we can say that um, 
for Volkswagen, that was done on purpose. It was intentional. The, 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 the court um, documents prove that. Um, for Fukushima, there could have been a sense of turning turning one's eye, you know, not not knowing that there's some things wrong, but just not doing anything about it. So that wasn't quite intentional in the same way that Volkswagen was. And for BP, they they were they were in a rush. They were in a hurry to complete an overdue schedule, escalating budgets. They they needed to complete that well and move on. In every single case there was a huge amount of pressure on the people who were working on the ground. And where was the pressure coming from? I mean, we go back to the issue of leadership. Um, in the case of Volkswagen, the pressure was essentially, Volkswagen wanted to be the, the number one car manufacturer in the world. And to do that, they had to capture the US market. To capture the US market, they had to meet the highest standard in the US, which was the Californian standard. Um, in terms of the uh, emissions allowed, right, uh, which were actually stricter than what you would find in Europe at the time. So they had to design an engine that was still small enough so it could it could be affordable for, for consumers, um, but was also cleaning <laughs> the diesel, right? Um, and it was impossible. It could not be done. But this was a, this was a company where the, one of their founders, uh, Ferdinand Piusch, had said, Nothing is impossible. So can you imagine this environment where you're told nothing is impossible? You're all creative engineers. Surely you can fix this, right? Um, and don't forget that in, in, in Germany, they all worked in this town called Wolfsburg, uh, where everybody more or less worked for or were connected with Volkswagen. So if you lost your job there, where were you going to go? And the German industry, car manufacturing industry, they all know each other. The last thing you want to do is get fired from a particular company, will you find work elsewhere? So there's a sense of deep fear that if I say I can't design an engine that meets these parameters, will I still have a job? So there was this huge pressure. And having mixed with engineers for many years myself, when I saw what they designed, I thought, actually, that's really clever. They really thought out of the box. So instead of focusing on the engine, they focused on the test, right? What were the parameters of the test? And how could they kind of get around that? That's a very lawyer way of thinking as well, actually. Um, <laughs> except in this case, it was clearly illegal, right? You are cheating um, a, a test. And it's amazing they, 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 they had got um, away with it for years. But what this shows is the huge pressure and the fear that they had that if they couldn't meet the demands of the leadership, that they would be out of a job. And, and we need to keep remembering, especially if we are leaders, we need to keep thinking of the pressure that we are putting people under. When it came to um, BP um, in the Gulf of Mexico, now none of them set out, no one sets out to kill anybody. But in the oil and gas industry, um, we, have, we have loads of what we would call safety barriers in place um, to ensure, you know, in the worst case, a blowout like what happened in the Gulf of Mexico wouldn't occur. I love the way I still say we, although I've left the industry, right? <laughs> so, um, and um, in, in this case, uh, I once counted there were 14, 14 violations. Because what happens is you don't have one person overseeing the whole thing. You would have one person in charge or maybe one or two of them and not aware that um, a shortcut in one area which could meet a violation. They just assume that something else is in place because there are all these barriers. 
But when everyone is assuming there's another barrier that will take care of it, what they don't realize is we've got what we call the Swiss cheese model. When all the when the holes line up, right, instead of having the barriers in between, you're going to get a blot, you're going to get an explosion. And that's what happened in that case. Every single barrier failed. And, and different people were in charge of different barriers. They were forced to take shortcuts because they were running out of time. Um, very quickly, um, a company I used to work for um, was due to do um, uh, what we call negative pressure tests on the well that morning. It blew up in the evening. Uh, and they were told, um, no, we don't have time for this. It wasn't going to cost very much, but they were also over budget. So this crew were flown off that morning and didn't perform. They were told by the client, no, we don't need to do it, right? So they didn't perform that negative uh, pressure test, which had they done it would have pointed to something, but they didn't. So that was one safety barrier that was removed, yeah. right? Because of the pressure of time and money. Um, so this is why it's really, really important for leaders to understand that when they put these pressures on their people and very very quickly i want to say another thing about bp the people who were handling the well out of houston if you look at their their kpis and their targets and all that 20 percent of it was on cost saving what does that tell you <laughs> and the, that percentage was higher than safety although as an industry we're very big on 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 putting safety first but when you look at what are the drivers of human behavior at an individual level what when, when you put those kind of um, targets on people, although you may be saying we're big on safety, but when you look at what's really going on, what behavior are you driving? And, and I think these are the questions that we need to ask. So yeah, in, in all cases, it was really um, pressure was, was the underlying thing. But because of that pressure and because of an environment where which it was hard to say, wait a minute, stop, 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 stop. Let's, uh, what are we doing here? You know, um, uh, people felt uncomfortable raising that, right? So had they felt comfortable, if it was an environment where the le leadership was open to new ideas, open to feedback, listening, um, and listening without, you know, shooting the messenger, then, you know, none of these incidents would have happened because people would have said, hang on, hang on, wait, wait, wait a minute, stop. Are we doing anything that's unsafe? And the reason why people are hesitant to say, stop, are we doing anything unsafe is because money is ticking somewhere else, right? And um, um, they, they have this perception that if I say stop, I'm going to be blamed because I'm putting a halt on production, on revenue. So, so there needs to be really strong and clear messaging, you know, coming from right at the top that, okay, what are our priorities? We put lives above all else, you know, if that, that should be, you know, I mean, that should really be the values. Um, and show that and make it clear to people, message that to people that that's okay. Yeah. And I, I mean, industry is driven clearly by, you know, finance. I, I find that very interesting that 20% of you know, the KPIs is driven at and in that scenario you, you gave on finance. What do you know what was there any focus? I mean what, what percentage do you know if there was any focus on the health and safety aspect of it and how far down the list it was or has things maybe evolved away from that now? 
Well, I'm sure they have been involved. They've done a lot of soul searching since yeah, then. I don't know. I don't know on an individual level. I mean, uh, um, in terms of their KPIs, but I remember that the managers uh, at that time, because this is something that was revealed in the inquiry, the Coast Guard inquiry that came out after that, that their that twenty percent um, of their 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 bonus and their KPIs would depend yeah, on that's... cost cutting. Um, so that that was quite a big deal. But it was interesting. Um, for BP, this this particular find um, in that part of Gulf of Mexico was huge. It was a huge, huge oil field, a very deep. It was it, that's why we call it deep water. Um, I can't remember the the measurements now, um, but one of the things because they had that they announced that to the stock market right they listed so this is another thing where pressure comes in um and of course the analysts got all excited like oh bp's got this huge find um and they were watching it now what was happening was because they were behind schedule you know there was huge pressure from very very high up that we need to deliver we need to you know um, the, this well, the Macondo well, was was hemorrhaging, was bleeding them dry in terms of both money and time. They were overdue by, they were two months behind schedule on one well. That's that's huge, and it was giving them all kinds of problems. They called it the well from hell. And by then, if you look at the the psychological, um, what was going on in their heads was that let's just complete this well and move on to the next one. So there was this desire to rush the job, hence they sent those engineers back um, um, on that morning. They just wanted to close the well, you know, so whatever happened. And even so, I mean, there were conversations uh, on the rig floor in terms of some some um, strange um, behavior coming out of the well, the readings, and, and they were just trying to explain it away because, oh, well, it's nothing. Um, they came up with this term, bladder effect, um, the, Probably the, the drillers will understand this if they're listening. But um, they said, you know, that's what it is. Nothing unusual. Close the well. And, of course, we know what happened next. But it goes back um, to the pressure. The other thing I wanted to speak to, I just wanted to very heavily, quickly head over to Japan, if you'll let me. <laughs> um, and we talked about this earlier, right? Um, in in Japan, um, it's interesting that the the the, the Daiichi reactor um, that they that they were using is actually a very old uh, reactor, um, and they were aware the people were working there. Yeah, you know, it, it was old; it hadn't been changed, and so on. Um, and they were also aware that you know you do get tsunamis um, in Japan. I mean, they've done risk assessments. Um, they they were aware that you know every few decades there'll be there were markers in terms of how high that waves could go. But at the same time, um, uh, the walls were too low to stop the sea sort of coming in if it went above a certain height. And people working there were aware of this. But you see, this is the thing. In, in Japan, and this is not just Japan, right? I mean, you see this even in organizations in the West. They, they don't question their elders, the, the seniors. You don't question authority. You just obey with whatever they say, even though you feel mm, it's, it's not quite right. So this just went on unquestioningly. Um, and so when the disaster did happen and the tsunami and the water went above the walls and it flooded um, uh, the, the reactors, um, the, looking back at it, um, the, the commission that did the investigation did an incredible amount of soul searching. And one of the things they said was, this is a disaster made in Japan simply because the culture is such that you do not question authority. You obey someone that's older than you, that's senior to you. And uh, while we could say, yes, very much, that's 
that was, you know, questioning Japanese culture itself, I would say that's common in quite a number of um, organizations. Yeah, it's, it's a whole other angle, isn't it, around, you know, you've got the, the leadership piece, you've got the, the employee trying to do a good job for the company and for the leader, um, and then, then you've got the, the, the locale or the country um, culture piece whereby, um, you know, the accountability piece within in their circles, but actually that accountability piece is what's actually been one of the factors um, of that, that horrible scenario. Um, Within all this, I mean, this is this is really really interesting. Um, I can relate to the the, the financial piece um, and the leadership piece, and 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 what I can see is the um, what leaders believe is happening versus actually what is happening on the rig, for example, or or in the power station, for example. You know, there's there's a mismatch there. Do you have any view on? Oh, absolutely. Um, there is a mismatch, and this is where you know we often say, "Oh, leaders should go to the ground and see what's going on." Well, that works to an extent, but you know, if you had some CEO go off to a rig and you know everyone's on their best behavior, they clean up everything. You know, I mean, we all know that. <laughs> and it's interesting. After I started writing uh, a number of pieces, um, I had. I had what we call roughnecks. So these are like technicians who work on rigs and so on, right back to me, you know, from Louisiana, Mississippi, um, uh, Texas. And um, they were saying, that's spot on what you just said. Um, because, you know, I mentioned the oil and gas industry is really big on safety, but it's interesting what actually translates to the people who, who, whose lives are at stake, right, out there on the rig. They understand safety rules and all that. Now, so this is what someone once relayed to me. So this was a particular rig, and we have what we call emergency shutdown buttons. They're like, you know, big red buttons, or whatever, to, to, to immediately shut down all operations and so on, so that in this case, in the case of um, Deepwater Horizon, um, it, it seals off the well, so you don't get any gas or oil coming up, which can cause explosions and so on. Um, and um, the moment you hit that red button, for us in the industry, it was always like, see anything dangerous, just hit it, don't ask any questions, nothing, do it. Now, one of these people wrote to me and he said, um, on our rig, so he worked for the rig contractor, and the rig contractor will work for a big, you know, an oil company like BP or Shell or Exxon and so on. Um, and so the oil companies are very clear, okay, safety, top notch and all that. But does that translate down to everyone, all their contractors? So what was happening on the rig is right next to that red button was this big notice that was actually specifying the day rate of the rig, you know, how many hundred thousand dollars a day. Um, and so the workers there were very aware that their job working on the rig was dependent on the rig working, right? So the rig still had the contract with the client. So the clients out there saying all these wonderful things about safety, but may not be aware that the contractors the workers for the contractors are seeing a different message. So it goes back to the alignment of, um, you know, what you're seeing right at the top. And is that really understood at the ground? Even if it's understood the ground, people are still afraid. If I press that red button and then I'm questioned, will I lose my job? Yeah. Um, so, so this is really what we need to be looking at. And, and this is exactly why I started Speak Up, because we are educating people in leadership in terms of creating environments and looking, you know, first of all, assess your environment. 
how well is it, you know, how easy is it for people to raise concerns to you safely so that you will act on them, right? Um, so that, that we're, we're teaching leaders, how do you listen? <laughs> when someone comes to you with bad news, how do you respond in a way that is open to listening and receiving feedback without making them feel afraid? So th this sounds so basic, but a lot of us leaders, I mean, I used to, I fail, you know, people would come to me when I was a lawyer and say, this happened, and I go, what, right? Just that very, very exclamation itself. And I could see the look on that person's face like, uh-oh, okay, I better censor myself now because if I tell her a bit more, she might scream at me or get upset. So um, it's amazing in terms of how our behavior influences how much people tell us. So mm -hmm. as leaders, we want to be open. Um, to, to listening and, and we do have to be trained to do that because <laughs> we're very used to being perhaps a little bit authoritarian perhaps a little bit you know very quick to make decisions but not so great sometimes at listening to to feedback yeah and uh, leaders tend to you know it's all about prioritization and maybe the prioritization because there's maybe not been an accident because there's maybe not it's not um, necessarily at the front of mind um, you know, health, safety and, and, you know, environmental concerns may go to the bottom of the list, I guess, of the prioritisation, um, which which is, is something that, that maybe needs to be looked at. Um, what, what, what about in terms of, of scale of company? I mean, we've touched on some major companies there, um, but, that you know, that, you know, our listeners might be thinking it's not relevant for, you know, for them because they're not part of a multinational um, company. I mean, are you aware whether you know scale actually affects um, concerns around environmental and health and safety and similar? You know, I think it, it's all the more important. Um, some of the big organisations may have fantastic policies and so on in place, um, and smaller ones may be struggling because they may not have the same resources to have this. I would say to the smaller organisations, um, especially in terms of leadership, it's it's actually not that difficult. It really is about being open and listening and um, asking people, you know, in a way that um, honors them as ex the experts that they are. I believe that everyone who works uh, within an organization, no matter what level, they have so much to give. And they're also intelligent enough to spot concerns and raise them. They just have to feel safe to do so. So even in small organizations, I would say, you know, leaders need to be um, taking steps to communicate, to open and ask their people, you know, uh, are things okay? What help do you need in a way that's non-threatening? Um, so, uh, and actually, so in that sense, it's easier for small organizations to do it than big ones, because there's less of a, you know, you don't have so many levels in between. Um, you know, so somebody working on, on the shop floor can very easily go to the, the top person and say, oh, you know, I have a problem. Um, so be open in that way. Um, and of course, um, if, you're, if you're the top person and, and you can't make sure people at the manager level can do that. So it's really interesting. Um, uh, you know, whenever you release this podcast right now, we're in lockdown. And um, I've seen I've seen organizations that say, yes, you know, the safety of our employees um, is our top concern. We want to make sure everyone is healthy and safe. And then you have managers telling employees, um, I don't care if you're feeling a little bit sick, you still have to come to the office. So you don't see the message at the top 
being reflected at the supervisory or the management level. So it's really important to make sure even in the middle level that people understand that. And there's a psychological behavior that's going on there too, because the people at the management level are under pressure to deliver as well, especially in uncertain times like this. So they will get stressed out if they feel their, their people are you know, unable to come to work and therefore they can't produce and therefore their necks on the line. So it's, it's that kind of culture that everyone is afraid for, for themselves. So leaders need to understand what's, go, what, what is the, what's driving the behavior at the managerial and supervisory level and why are they doing what they're doing. You know, uh, so so it's it's important to ensure that messages are are consistent all the way throughout the organization and that everyone feels safe to raise issues, um, especially, especially today. Yeah. And and this this scenario, I mean, the world has never seen this scenario where we're talking in in 2020 in the the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. scenario um which maybe leads on to that we've talked plenty on um where we have been and i guess where we are at the moment but where do you see the the future going what 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 would you like to if we we revisit this in a few years time or a few months time you know where where would you like to see the future i mean is is there any modern processes or practices or digitization is there anything in addition to training or in this in addition to um you know what you're doing well well what we're doing in speak at work we we actually have a step-by-step process uh, which you know helps organizations assess where their culture is now in terms of the ability to speak up and raise issues and then what we also do is that where you identify the gaps um, you know, we help uh, we help uh, close those gaps, or we help you design to close those gaps because it depends what the issues are. Whether it's an issue of education, putting policies policies in place, um, coaching leaders, um, and then so to me, you know, one following some of those those steps in what I call a sort of speak up journey and creating environments where anyone can raise any issue without fear of being. Uh, ostracized or, or, or fired, right? Um, I, you know, I would love a future where that you almost have an equalization in a sense that people who are working for you feel empowered. You know, they're like, you know, hey boss, you don't have to say boss, just say his first name. You know, you know, hey Scott, <laughs> um, I'm a little bit worried about this, and do you think we should do it this way? And and you're going, oh. Right, that's that's. I didn't know about that. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. You know, having these conversations in a very non-threatening way. So it's like, um, because I look at whistleblowing as well, and the word whistleblowing itself is terrifying. So you shouldn't have to feel that you're whistleblowing. You're raising an issue. You're raising a concern that you're a bit worried about, right? Um, which, if isn't addressed, can be a huge threat to the company. Can be a huge threat to to other people. Um, but so you're raising it, right? Um. Um, so I want to see an environment where it's very normal for people to it. So if you look at, let's say, a hospital setting, okay, that, that's, a, that's a big one. Um, and a doctor sees something that isn't quite right. Or maybe, an, okay, a medical staff sees a doctor not quite following procedures, right? And the medical staff should be able to say, um, immediately then say, oh, you know, you missed a step there. Or, or, or you know, and the the response should be, Oh, yeah, thank you. Or maybe to say, well, actually, in this case, 
um, it, it didn't have to apply because da 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 da. But not to immediately turn around and say, "How dare you question me? I have twenty years as a as a surgeon, and who are you?" You know. Um, mm-hmm. So when you get when you the moment you introduce that power dynamic and remind someone of their place, um, what you're causing is. Oh, right. They, they will retract. The medical staff will like, okay, I'm not going to say anything next time because I'm going to get shouted at. And then what happens, right? An actual error does happen and somebody dies. Yeah. So this is where we need people to being open to being told, no, 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 that's not right. Mm-hmm. And not get defensive and not take it personally and take it as a way to improve the way they do things to improve the system. Um, so it's a real mindset change. A lot of it is about self-awareness, self-reflection. Um, and and we're really, be- I mean, I personally have gone through that myself. So, you know, I think, I think that is really, really important uh, for everyone in the workplace. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you. I mean, certainly what I've learned today, I think um, that there's a number of issues in there. I think plenty of it has been driven by um, finance and by accountability to finance. Um, but actually, if, if companies realise the benefit of empowering employees to be part of that fa- financial accountability, which includes the governance piece and health and safety piece, um, then everyone can actually work in the same direction, um, I guess, and and I guess um, leaders as well. And, and having spoken to plenty over the years, um, good leaders are always open to to learning um, about how to improve, um, especially within engineering. So um, I look forward to seeing um, how that evolves. But um, look, um, that, that brings us to the end of this week's Engineering Ignition podcast. I would like to to thank Anima um, for, for, from Speaker speak up at work. I will get it right for the end of the podcast <laughs> uh, for joining me this morning um, and talking us through this week's hot topic. And um, if you'd like to get in touch with Anima and um, to discuss how she might improve things in your organization, please contact Anima at anima at speakupatwork.com. Thank you all for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening to the Engineering Ignition podcast. If you've made it this far, we take it that you enjoyed the show. In return, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Subscribe while you're there and we'll catch you for the next episode.